You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. What happened to King at the end of his life was not some accidental thing. It wasn't just that he was killed in Memphis. There was a huge movement in Memphis that was probably just as important as the Montgomery bus boycott. And there's a lot to understand about the linkage between labor and civil rights by understanding King's trajectory. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, a conversation with Martin Luther King Jr. scholar Michael Honey. The online talk, All Labor Has Dignity, took place last year on April 5th, 53 years after Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis and on the precipice of yet another right-to-work vote in New Hampshire. This was at least the 30th attempt to pass a right-to-work bill in New Hampshire in the last 40 years. And Michael Honey's talk was organized to remind folks in New Hampshire that not only was Dr. King assassinated while supporting a labor strike, but that he was a strong opponent of right to work, which, as he pointed out, provides no rights and no work. The talk was organized by the American Friends Service Committee New Hampshire Program and the New Hampshire United Church of Christ Economic Justice Ministry team and with the support of the New Hampshire AFL-CIO. The right-to-work bill in New Hampshire was not only defeated in June last year, but a motion to postpone the bill indefinitely passed 196 to 178, which means the bill, or something similar to it, can't be reintroduced until 2023. And, on today's Labor History in 2... The year was 1917. That was the day that Montana Republican Jeanette Rankin was sworn in as the first ever woman elected to the U.S. Congress. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. My name is Arnie Alpert. Uh, For about four decades, I was associated with the New Hampshire program of the American Friends Service Committee, and I retired uh, last year. And I now have a pension, which is uh, in part protected by the fact that I had a strong union. I want to give special thanks this evening to the Reverend Dr. Gail Kinney for organizing this event. I want to thank the New Hampshire program of the American Friends Service Committee for Zoom hosting and Jason Wells of the New Hampshire Council of Churches for helping out and thank all of you for coming. Uh, What prompted this evening's program is a coincidence between the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, which was yesterday, and a crucial vote that is coming up in the legislature on right to work, or more properly called right to work for less, uh, virulent anti-labor legislation, which is a very serious threat this year. We are thrilled that Michael Honey has found time to talk with us about Dr. King's connection to the labor movement and why that still matters. I was reflecting back on our 20-year campaign 
to make Dr. King's birthday a holiday in New Hampshire. Uh, about 10 years into the campaign, our strongest opponents got clever and proposed that instead of Martin Luther King Day, that we have a holiday called Civil Rights Day, because after all, Dr. King was a civil rights leader and that there were other civil rights leaders. From then on, and that was another decade, we argued that to understand Dr. King's distinct contribution, we could not combine him, confine him to a box labeled civil rights. That Dr. King was obviously always an advocate for civil rights and speaking out against racism, but he was always an advocate for economic justice. He was always an advocate for nuclear disarmament and peace. He was always an advocate for using nonviolence as the best way to bring about change. Well, I wish we had had Michael Honey's books already by then to help us. Here's what Michael Honey says about the importance of Dr. King's labor speeches. He says, these previously unavailable speeches may help people in the current explosion of unemployment, homelessness, hunger, poverty, and war to think anew about issues that bedevil us today, continuing racial divisions and the politics of hate, machines and corporations taking people's jobs away, senators who filibuster to stop social progress, the waste of economic resources on failed military solutions to human problems, a widespread business-promoted culture of opposition to unions, and a mass media that fails to examine the intertwined destructive effects of racism, poverty, and war. So who is Michael Honey and why have we invited him here to join us? Michael is a teacher of African-American and U.S. history, of civil rights and labor studies at the University of Washington at Tacoma. Before his academic career, he was the Southern Director of the National Committee Against Repressive Legislation. He has way too many honors, awards, and publications to list, but I want to mention a couple of things. He is the author of Black Workers Remember, an Oral History of Segregation, Unionism, and the Freedom Struggle, published in 1999. He is the author of an invaluable book called Going Down Jericho Road, The Memphis Strike, King's Last Campaign, published in 2007. He is the editor of All Labor Has Dignity, a collection of Dr. King's labor speeches. Uh, you can see my versions have all sorts of little tabs on them of uh, things to remember. Uh, Michael is a producer of a documentary film called Love and Solidarity, Reverend James Lawson and Nonviolence in the Search for Workers' Rights. Michael Honey, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. My most recent book, To the Promised Land. And as you just heard, uh, what I've been really specializing in is King's uh, association and relationship to the labor movement. And until I started doing that, uh, that was something that was basically unknown. And actually it was unknown to me. Uh, I was researching in the King Papers in Atlanta for another book that I was working on. And I found a file called King's uh, Labor Speeches. And it turned out to be not a file, it was a whole box. And so that's how we ended up with that book called Labor Has Dignity. And then that came sort of after this 10-year slog of trying to write the history of the Memphis sanitation strike. And the point of it is that what you just heard, that uh, people used to see King as uh, a civil rights leader. And of course, I'm sure all of you know that he was far more than that. 
um, not putting down civil rights, but he said that the civil rights struggle was only phase one of the freedom struggle. So he went, he said 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott to 1965, the uh, Selma to Montgomery campaign, which those, that 10 year period got us the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. He said, but all that is doing is restoring rights that we once had under the freedom amendments to the constitution after the Civil War. So we're just getting something that was ours to begin with that was taken away. Now we want social and economic justice. So this last book, um, what I tried to do in this is to put that all together in a little more um, coherent way. The Going Down Jericho Road book, what that one does is tells you what happened to King at the end of his life was not some accidental thing. It wasn't just that he was killed in Memphis. There was a huge movement in Memphis that was probably just as important as the Montgomery bus boycott. And that it, there's a lot to understand about the linkage between labor and civil rights by understanding King's trajectory. And of course we know and just heard about the linkage between racism, poverty, and war. So to begin with, King was trying to bring about a moral revolution and that's what the Poor People's Campaign was about. Uh, the Memphis sanitation strike was about rights for working people and um, dignity uh, for people at work and how they're all connected today uh, in this crisis that we're in now. King being killed in a sanitation strike was not some um, one-off accidental thing. He was a longtime labor advocate throughout his whole life. My friend Robin Kelly says that this is an important story because it's about love in action. It's about uh, radical hopes and the idea of transformation. And I'm gonna start with this, that uh, people don't think of this when they see King in his um, nice clothing and his great diction, uh, that uh, his grandparents were slaves and uh, sharecroppers, and that he comes out of that whole story of uh, slavery and then segregation in the South. He was not separated from any of this. He grew up in a neighborhood. If you ever go to Atlanta and go through his neighborhood, uh, the poverty is still there. And uh, so he was never really removed from this. And then when he got involved in the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, it was putting his beliefs into action. He didn't start it. And it was accidental in, in the sense that he didn't go to M Montgomery as a minister with any idea of starting a movement. Rosa Parks did that and E.D. Nixon. And it's really the women uh, of that boycott that carried it on and made it so powerful. And, uh, and he was very appreciative of this. And he learned a lot about the working class movement in the Montgomery movement, that this is where the power came from. If you look at the um, gatherings in the churches, most of the people in the church are women and they're singing and they're, you know, these are the people that ride the buses. These are the great majority of people riding the buses. 
So uh, what King became was someone who could put words to action and help to interpret this to the rest of the world. And of course, they won that struggle, but not after their home, uh, Coretta King and Martin King, their home was bombed and he was arrested and uh, kidnapped by the police for a short time. And other people had some terrible things. Um, this is a really important uh, picture. This is at um, Highlander Folk School, as it was called back then in 1957. And he gave a speech there, he said, I never intend to adjust myself to the evils of segregation and the tragic inequalities of an economic system that takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. He always had what King said is a kind of a Marxist view of capitalism. Of course, he was a Christian, you know, he was not a Marxist, but the way he looked at capitalism was uh, from a social gospel viewpoint of uh, the black church. And he saw capitalism as exploitive and something that had to be controlled and reformed and toward the end of his life, radically reformed. Um, and of course, the first thing that happened that he was uh, called a communist, which is, you know, ridiculous to think about the most famous uh, Baptist preacher in the world being seen as a communist. But it, it sort of reminds us uh, of the time that we're in today, uh, that these same kind of things uh, are going on. So uh, what he was, was a Gandhian. He was somebody who's following the nonviolent philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, if you go to the King Center in Atlanta, you'll see the six principles of direct action, nonviolent direct action. And um, as this last six principles says, uh, he got his inspiration from Jesus and his techniques from Gandhi. I grew up in the Detroit area and King came to Detroit a number of times. The, what I like about the pictures is it shows you how people related to Dr. King, uh, the powerful synergy that they had, um, how his movement was related to the other movements. And uh, what happened in the South was seen really as uh, an epical struggle to overturn segregation but it was much more. James Lawson says that um, we, every movement that we had had an economic framework to it. Uh, this, of course, is the letter from the Birmingham jail. And you're probably familiar with a lot of that. You may not be familiar, though, with the scripto sanitation strike. Uh, he came back from Oslo, Norway, where he got the Nobel Peace Prize after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was enacted. And the first thing he did was go on the picket line with these 800 black women in his neighborhood where his church was, and they, they won that strike. And uh, King always had this uh, strong uh, relationship to uh, the working class uh, issues of the South and of the country. And when he was in Oslo, uh, he put this out in a very clear way, he said, there's um, people everywhere need to have three meals a day for their bodies, education for their minds and dignity, equality and freedom for their spirits. Um, and he was already talking at this time about the three major social evils alive in the world today, war, economic injustice and racial injustice. 
And so he continued on that. And this was, uh, this is Selma, and this is John Lewis, of course, being beaten in Selma. Um, this was the beginning of phase two. Once Selma led to the Voting Rights Act, uh, then King said the next um, phase is economic and social justice. This is down in Mississippi with Stokely Carmichael and other people. Um, by 1967, he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign to try to go to Washington. He was traveling about 300 days out of the year, most of his life from 1965 onward. This is where I sort of intersect with the story. This is Detroit in 1967, where we saw the urban issues in the North um, really as the huge challenge to uh, the struggle in phase two for economic and social justice. And so this was, I was um, in college when this was happening. And then in 68, uh, the, the year before I graduated, this happened, the Memphis sanitation strike. Uh, the poorest of the poor, 1,300 people, uh, all men in this uh, workforce, who uh, I won't, if you really want to read about them um, read uh, Going Down Jericho Road, or Black Workers Remember. I interviewed a lot of these workers. But it was terrible work um, on poverty wages. And he came to speak uh, to help them in their strike, which had been going on for six weeks when he came to Memphis. And here's what he said. Keep your mind. Stay it 
on freedom. There ain't no harm to keep your mind. Stay on freedom. There ain't no harm to keep your mind. Stay on freedom. Hallelujah. 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 Yeah. So, uh, those are songs by David Sawyer and Michael Honey. <laughs> um, the Memphis sanitation strike left a real important imprint. Uh, we lost Dr. King, but we won the strike. And it left a big imprint on American labor. Um, I, when I researched these different books, what I found was a tremendous linkage that King had to unions all over the country. So that RWDSU union that's organizing in Bessemer, King spoke to their conventions repeatedly and was considered like a member of their union. Longshore union, same thing. Packing house workers, same thing. Um, 1199 hospital workers, King had all these relationships with, with labor unions. And so, you know, when we celebrate King, this is my mission in, in life, when we celebrate King, we need to understand his whole message. And I'll get to in a minute why that relates to the right to work issues that you're dealing with. So anyway, the, the, the message is that the, the struggle continues on. And, um, I'll say a few words about right to work. So this is um, Dr. King in 1964. Um, he campaigned to try to stop right to work laws in Oklahoma and other places, along with the NAACP and other civil rights groups. Uh, in our glorious fight for civil rights, we must guard against being fooled by false slogans such as right to work. This high sounding label does not mean what it says. It's a dishonest twisting of words with the aim of making a vicious law sound like a good law. It provides no rights and no work. It's a law to rob us of our civil rights and job rights. It's supported by Southern segregationists who are trying to keep us from achieving our civil rights and our right of equal job opportunity. Its purpose is to destroy labor unions and the freedom of collective bargaining by which unions have improved wages and working conditions of everyone. Wherever these laws have been passed, wages are lower, job opportunities are fewer, and there are less fewer civil rights. Many unions have proved they are friends and are trying to help improve our, our conditions in every way. These right to work segregationists, that's a phrase to remember, these right to work segregationists are now trying to pass this in Oklahoma. This was in 64. We do not intend to let them do this. Uh, I think they stopped that, uh, that campaign. Uh, we demand this fraud be stopped. Our weapon is our vote. Uh, and then of course he talked about the importance of people voting and defeating this. Uh, there was a lot of literature actually during this time period about uh, right to work uh, laws. One other quote from him, uh, such legislation is not intended to and cannot benefit the Negro worker. It is designed instead to worsen his lot, to make his wages lower, 
um, and to destroy the unions, which brought us a higher standard of living. So, you know, this has been a campaign going on since the Taft-Hartley law of 1947, which opened up this whole thing about getting rid of union shops and allowing uh, state governments to uh, basically outlaw the union shop or the closed shop. Uh, and then of course the Janus decision by the US Supreme Court now made it possible for people to do this even uh, in places like New Hampshire, which if we have a right to work law in Michigan where I grew up, which was uh, hard to believe because that was the land of the um, United Auto Workers and the NAACP and a really strong labor and civil rights coalition when I was growing up in the 60s. It's astonishing to me now that even in Michigan, they have one of these. Uh, I'll end with one positive note about this to keep in mind. I spent a semester in Norway recently before the pandemic started and what I discovered was uh, all public employees belong to unions, ministers belong to unions, the minister in my neighborhood belonged to three unions. Um, it's a union uh, place and 50% of all employees belong to union. Of course, if you go to um, some of the other Norwe uh, Nordic countries, you'll find even higher percentages. And then I discovered that they don't have union shops. You, you're not required to join a union on the job. And so I, I asked one of the workers uh, where I was at an academic institute. She said, well, we would be ashamed if we didn't join the union. Our parents would shame us if we didn't join the union. We don't need somebody to make us join the union. We know that this is in our interest. So even as these right to work laws spread across the land, it doesn't mean that it's hopeless. Um, Alabama is a right to work state. And uh, hopefully maybe these people will vote to unionize at Amazon. Could you say a little bit about how the victory in Memphis in 68 um, unleashed a wave of organizing among black public sector workers throughout the South and throughout the country? Yeah, uh, that, that victory in Memphis was crucial. Um, up till that point, the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees had organized almost nobody in, in municipal employment in the South. You know, South is the hardest place to organize. And one of the reason they put everything they had into that campaign was that they thought Memphis will make it or break it for public employee unions. And in fact, that union, uh, Jerry Wirth was the president, um, Bill Lucy was the organizer. They, they were there for the whole thing and they really did put everything into it. And after that strike uh, was resolved and the union um, solidified in Memphis, it, it did spread to uh, different cities around the South and mostly importantly is the whole country. Uh, it, it encouraged uh, public employees to organize. So it, in that sense, it was a victory despite losing Dr. King. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, I also see the movement to privatize 
and the whole Janus decision as an attack on workers of color uh, in particular, because those were in, in some ways the major beneficiaries of what happened after, after 68. So I think that's an important ingredient yes. to add to our critique of, of privatization. You know, it's often said that um, Dr. King became um, a, more, a more powerful threat to um, our institutions when he started to speak out about the Vietnam War. Um, but I also wonder, um, the whole idea that black workers would begin to organize in a big way and then somehow unite, you know, the, the, the idea that unions unite workers um, from all walks of life, black workers, white workers, was that also seen as a huge threat? Yeah, um, well, you know, when you get down to it, um, that's, that remains the big issue of the day, you know, and, and if you track the right-wing trajectory of the United States, all you have to do is watch what happens with union density. Uh, at, when King was doing his best work, they had the, what they called the Negro Labor Alliance, and about 35% of workers in the U.S. belonged to unions. Uh, and then after Ronald Reagan started the massive union busting campaigns, um, now it's down to less than 10%. So that was, you know, that's, that's really what one of the major things that's holding us back. And uh, until white workers and black workers and workers of color and women and, you know, all genders start working together in a union framework of some kind uh, and it doesn't even have to be a traditional union but some some way of working together for economic justice um, we're going to keep suffering with a lot of the problems that we have we have other problems like racism and sexism and you know um, all the other isms but how do you solve those things somehow you've got to organize people so I, you know, I don't know if the people that would see King as a threat thought of him so much as a union leader, but workers did. Question from David Blair. Um, I understand there's a federal law that prohibits an employee being denied employment because she or he does not belong to a union. Is that correct? There is the National Labor Relations Act. Um, closed shops, which would deny employment, um, have been illegal for quite some time. Um, and even membership is um, not required. What's required is that people either become a member of the union, this is when there is a union security clause, which are not permitted in right to work states. You either must be a member of the union or pay a fee that covers collective bargaining. And there is another question from David Blair. If that is so, is the impact of right to work that a worker receives union benefits without belonging to the union? Yes, that's and that that is the problem. Uh, and the I think the right wing and employer strategy on this is so simple. Um, if workers are unionized, but they can receive all the benefits without paying any dues, why would they pay dues? And if they don't pay dues, how long will you have a union? So this was the key 
issue actually in the Memphis sanitation strike. It wasn't, they had every issue that you can imagine a, a worker might have, but the thing that held up making an agreement with the city was they insisted on do, union dues deduction from their wages. And the city said, I will never, the mayor, uh, Henry Loeb said, I will never allow union deduction, deduction of union wages by the city. Finally, the city council did it. The mayor never did do it. But the reason was that it was crucial to have a union in Memphis. Um, you had to have some source of funding to have organizers, to have stewards, to have an office. You know, if you don't have any funds, you can't function. And that's what, that's what it's about, essentially. And so the workers who don't join the union and do have union benefits, um, they're getting those benefits without paying anything, but eventually there isn't gonna be a union under those circumstances. So this is a question from uh, Tristan Husby. Um, what were the sources of tension between Dr. King and labor leaders? How, if they did, did they resolve these tensions? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, if, if you read All Labor Has Dignity, you'll find King's speech, let's see, what's the date, um, before the AFL-CIO, uh, called If the Negro Wins, Labor Wins. This is early, 1961, where he, ex he makes a very strong pitch for labor rights, our civil rights, and we have to work together. But then he gives this scorching critique of uh, unions that at that time in their constitution uh, prohibited blacks from being members. Uh, there were unions like that. And so um, there were lots of racist unions, especially building trades, railroad workers, uh, that excluded black people. And that was one of the sources of weakness of the American labor movement was uh, as long as you use a union to keep people out, you are undercutting the whole framework of, of union organizing. And that's, that's what happened in the skilled trades. Um, that still hasn't been broken down very well. So yeah. Mike, had, in your book, you also, you also talk about the, um, the attachment of the AFL-CIO in particular at that time, or that we might call the AFL-CIA, uh, their, their attachment to Cold War international policy, which King was, was challenging. Yes. Yeah, and that was another source of tension. And when he came out against the war, I mean, he was against the war from the beginning. It's just that in 67, April 4th, he explained the whole thing and made it so um, clear what, what the issues were. And the AFL-CIO no longer would support him uh, after that. They were totally at odds over that issue. He, he was, uh, in, in All Labor Has Dignity, you'll find him giving the keynote address at the Labor for Peace conference in, I think it's September, 1967. And um, there were these so-called left-wing unions that he was very connected with. They were the, the peace unions, uh, especially. So this question may play into that from Keith McRae, where he asked, um, 
about the relationship between Dr. King and Walter Ruther from the United Auto Workers. Yeah, and, and that's a good example of the tragedy of the Vietnam War. Uh, Walter Ruther was a socialist and he and King should have been on the same page on foreign policy. They were on the same page about economic justice. Ruther was one of the strongest supporters of the civil rights movement. Uh, but there were two things. One was that a, a lot of white workers in the UAW wanted to keep blacks out of the skilled labor positions, this issue we just talked about a minute ago. And the other was foreign policy. And eventually Ruther came out against the war after King died. Um, but they, they had a strong relation, a positive relationship, but there were these big tensions over those two things. All right, well, let's stop right there. I wanna turn it over to the Reverend Dr. Gail Kinney uh, to talk a little bit about what's going on with Right to Work. So this program today, April 5th, the day after, 53 years after uh, Dr. King was assassinated, this is part of our attempting to lift up where he was when he was killed and, and then what it means to us today and reminding people that he was in the midst of a labor struggle at that time. Um, the other thing I wanna say really quickly is that you mentioned um, just the effort to try to continue to divide black and white workers. My understanding is that this is exactly where right to work laws came from, that when black and white oppressed workers were attempting to come together um, in the South in the Jim Crow era and form unions that would include both, both blacks and whites, that that was absolutely abhorrent uh, to people in power or people with money. And so um, there, one of the people who was leading that effort was somebody named Vance Muse, who was a, um, a wealthy Texas industrialist. Um, and I just wanna say for the people from the faith community that are, that are listening tonight, uh, Mr. Muse formed something called the Christian American Association, which was the backer of right to work laws in the South. So in a way, our efforts as, as people of faith and faith leaders to try to combat this and oppose right to work in New Hampshire is one way that we need to pay reparations for the, uh, at least the, the Christians among us, um, for the fact that, that Christianity was used as the platform for pushing right to work. And Mr. Muse also said in one of his Christian American Association publications, said specifically, um, and some of you have heard me say this already, but some haven't, this is a quote from him in this in a, a Christian publication. If right to work laws are not passed, then white women and white men will be forced into organizations, meaning unions, with black African apes whom they will have to call brother or they will lose their jobs. So, so this very specifically, it wasn't hidden at all. So I just wanted to share that as well. I want to call on my brother, Glenn Brackett, the president of the New Hampshire AFL-CIO, who has been unrelenting and probably hasn't gotten very much sleep in, in a number of weeks in terms of trying to ensure that New Hampshire um, says once again, as we've been saying for about 40 years, right to work is wrong for New Hampshire. So, Glenn? Thank you, Sister Gail. And uh, Dr. Honey, thank you so much. You know, I, I think about the old expression, um, you know, those who don't know learn history are, are are doomed to repeat it and for 40 years we have dealt with right to work in new hampshire and because the the working families the faith coalition business partners we've been able to cobble together um 
a coalition of goodness is what I would call it because that's what it is. You know, when I, when I, I didn't know that much about Dr. Martin Luther King until I watched some of the things that Dr. Honey put out tonight. But one thing jumped off the screen at me, you know, his concept that we needed a moral revolution to replace the self-seeking individuals individualism of the rich with the overriding concern for the common good. I mean, that just speaks volumes of where we are as a society today. If you look at, if you look at the libertarians and the, republics, the Republicans, all they wanna do, all they wanna do is keep giving more to the rich and take away from the working family. And as Gail said, you know, we've worked so hard over the years to fight this. I mean, you know, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we have the opportunity tonight, and we have the opportunity over the next couple of weeks to continue to put together our message because this is a message of hope. Um, as Gail said, it's been kind of a it's been kind of a, 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 a roller coaster ride because you go up and down, up and down, up and down. But the constant is this: we are going to stand up for what's right. Proverbs twenty four says, "If you do nothing in difficult times, your strength is limited." Brothers and sisters, our strength is not limited here. We have untold amount of power if we work together to utilize it. Thanks, Clint. Sounds like a, a sermon about love and solidarity. Michael, honey, do you have a, a final word for us before we say goodnight? I especially appreciated what Glenn just said. Um, you know, this King's whole thing was about social gospel unionism. And that has a very powerful history in the United States. And bringing church people together and secular people and labor people and civil rights people. I mean, this is the movement of the, of the peasant, present and the future and, and of the past too. I love seeing your, your photos, Michael, and thinking about the movements in Montgomery, the movement that led to the passage of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64, the movement that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 65, the movement that led to the victory of the Memphis workers. That's where we need to be. So this is all about solidarity. Um, we need to stop right to work, and then we need to go on to all these other things where we are, where we are called to bring about more social justice and more peace here, uh, including stronger representation of workers by organized labor, by, by unions. When I think about the Memphis strike and I go back and I re-listen to the speech that Dr. King gave on the night before he was killed, we all remember the part about I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. There's one line in it that always stays out there with me. And that's when Dr. King says, when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. So with that in mind, I want to thank you all for coming and uh, onward. It's a great pleasure to meet you all. Thank you. Solidarity. That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? Question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness.
Let us stand with a greater determination. Let us move on in these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day that Montana Republican Jeanette Rankin was sworn in as the first ever woman elected to the U.S. Congress. Her mother was a school teacher and her father was a rancher. On her victory, Representative Rankin said, I may be the first woman member of Congress, but I won't be the last. Rankin was dedicated to the causes of women's suffrage and improving social welfare, especially for women and children. She was also a staunch pacifist. She was one of only 50 representatives who voted against the United States' entry into World War I. Her stance cost her politically. After one term in the House, she ran for the Senate but lost. Losing her place in Washington did not slow Rankin down, however. She became the field secretary for the National Consumers League, a post she held for three years. Working from the famed Hull House, she traveled around the Midwest speaking for women's rights and workers' rights. She lobbied state legislators to support minimum wage laws and to reduce the long hours required of many workers. She was a major advocate for the child labor amendment. This proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution would have required Congress to regulate all labor by children under the age of 18. 28 states ratified the amendment, but it never reached approval by three-fourths of the states required to amend the Constitution. In 1941, Rankin returned to Congress. There, she continued her dedication to pacifism, where after the attack on Pearl Harbor, she cast the only no vote on the U.S. entry into World War II. The very unpopular vote effectively ended her political career. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can help more folks find the show by liking it in your podcast app and passing it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Special thanks this week to the American Friends Service Committee New Hampshire program, the New Hampshire United Church of Christ Economic Justice Ministry team, and the New Hampshire AFL-CIO, who organized the Michael Honey Talk. We've got a link to the entire talk on YouTube, which includes lots of great images in the show notes. As always, thanks to Labor History in Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes... Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.